You are listening to Middle East Monitor Conversations, bringing you lively discussions with prominent voices from the region and beyond as we delve deeper into issues shaping the Middle East and North Africa, from politics to culture and the arts. Hello and welcome to another conversation with the Middle East Monitor. My name is Nassim Ahmed and I will be your host for today's conversation. We have a very special guest today, someone whose work I've followed and admired for many, many years, uh, someone whose journey as a journalist uh, has been inspiring, you know, to say the least, not just for me, for many, many others. I am um, absolutely thrilled to be able to welcome to the show, you know, Peter Oban, uh, to our conversation. Welcome to the show, Peter, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nassim. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Peter, uh, as many of you know, is a, is a British journalist and broadcaster. He is the former chief political commentator of the Daily Telegraph, from which he resigned in 2015. He is the author of countless books, uh, too many for me to list here. Uh, one of his recent volume is The Assault on Truth, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, and the Emergence of a New Moral Barbarism. Uh, Peter has graciously joined uh, our conversation to discuss his latest book, uh, which is called the, the, the Fate of Abraham, Why the West is Wrong About Islam. Um, I want to touch on something else, Peter, before we get to your book. Um, given the latest developments and the waves of resignations, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, uh, Peter. You used to work with uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, so I want to begin by getting your thoughts uh, before diving in to the book. Uh, the two are not entirely unrelated, and I think they fit neatly into some of the broader themes of your work, which I will get to uh, later on in the conversation. So begin, if you may, just giving us your thoughts on uh, the Conservative Party and the waves of resignations. Well, we're going through the final convulsions of uh, Boris Johnson's time as Tory leader at the moment. He, he's certain to go. I think he'll probably be, he might, could even go tonight. I don't think he'll last beyond tomorrow. And um, what we're seeing here is the collapse of, uh, you know, the Johnson project, which I think has to be understood as a far-right project, authoritarian uh, project, um, which had very inspired by the United States, by a number of think tanks, drove it. Brexit was part of it, but it wasn't all of it. And um, one of the, um, the, the victims of, of the Johnson Project, of course, were, were Muslims. We've seen the very ugly language used, bigoted language used by Mr. Johnson and his many of his senior members of his uh, team about Muslims and the way in which Muslims were taught, treated within the Tory party. So it was a, I wouldn't, I would say that Johnson was leading an attack on liberal democracy, uh, the rule of law, uh, freedom of speech, um, and um, the, the uh, parliament itself, he was trying to have a presidential system of government uh, we've seen this, these, these sort of things emerging across the world. Donald Trump made a sim had a similar attack. Uh, Modi in India, who was a great ally and friend of Mr. Johnson, as we saw, um, he, he's been doing the same thing. Um, and so 
and this project, I don't know whether it's failed, because it, the reason why Johnson has gone or is about to go is because of his own moral failings, his lying, his deceit, his uh, cronyism, his sleaze, um, and whether that he's replaced by somebody who just carries on the same project, or whether he, um, he, he, he something else can, better can take its place, we will see. Yeah, that, that would be the question, um, is if Johnson is just um, the head of a project uh, in its UK form, then um, simply changing the leader does not make any difference as far as British Muslims are concerned. The Conservative Party will still remain, um, as many Muslims would say, anti or Islamophobic and bigoted when it comes to its uh, Muslim citizens. Um, that, I suspect, will, will remain the case. Uh, Johnson just brings in a more vulgar, you know, um, colour to it. <laughs> and and yeah, this that's we, but we, we, we will see, because I think the departure of Johnson does discredit the whole project, because it was embodied in an individual who turns out to be completely unfit for public office. Mm. And so people will want to re-examine it in the wake of this, this sensational moment. I mean, it's worth just adding that we've never had a prime minister ever who's left office in personal shame and disgrace, the way that Mr. Johnson is doing at the moment. He, he will be out very soon, I predict. He will leave office in shame and disgrace. This has never happened. We had a prime minister for 300 years in Britain, ever since Sir Robert Walpole in the 18th century. They've been driven out of office for failures of policy, but never for impersonal disgrace. Mm. So let's turn to your book now. Um, as I said, I mean, it does tie in with other themes which I will bring in uh, later on from your other books, uh, especially The Assault on Truth. Um, so turning to your book, you mentioned that it had taken 20 years to write this. So uh, tell us how you came about, uh, came to write the book. Tell us how it happened. Yeah. Well, actually, funnily enough, I was, uh, when I made the original decision to I set eyes on the path which led to the writing of this book. I was working for Mr. Johnson. He was the editor of the Spectator magazine, and I was the political correspondent. Um, it was after it was after 9-11, and it was at the time of 7-7, um, the two terrible atrocities. But I noticed at the same time that there was a very ugly public discourse building up against Muslims in British newspapers, indeed in The Spectator, which I was working for. I, there was a lot which I found very vulgar, ugly and sinister. And so I set out to investigate these false stories about Muslims. And I used to travel up and down Britain. Now, I read in a, in a hospital that Muslims are spreading disease. Now, Muslim doctors at Leicester. I went to the University of Leicester where the doctors were. And, of course, there's nothing in the story. That's a very medieval trope, isn't it? Yes. Often used against Jews, of course, in the Middle Ages. But this was about Muslims. And I went there. I invented, it, was, it was something which had been twisted and distorted. Uh, out of all context, it was totally untrue. I went to Manchester. There was a splash in the sun about a about a about a Kurdish refugee who fled Saddam Hussein, 
and he was apparently going to, the sun said, blow up Manchester United football ground on match day. I went there. I found the refugee. I talked to him for an hour. He was just somebody who loved Britain, actually. He loved and it, Manchester United. was his connection. He'd always supported Manchester United. And the police had investigated him. constructed this fake story. I apologised to him. He was tra traumatised. I, I, I never used his name. I talk about him in the book. I never used his name. He, it was so shaming that Britain had entertained a refugee and then put him through this. I said so to him. And there are so many other stories like that. It made me angry and upset. Have you, have you heard about the recent um, alleged um, miscarriage of justice regarding the conviction of um, four Uh, Muslims, uh, I think many years, a couple of years back, I think Cage is working on, he's produced a documentary on it, uh, he's spoken to the lawyers and, um, you know, they've published a documentary and saying that there has been a miscarriage of justice, there's enough evidence to suggest that this case should have been thrown away. So for, for the viewers here, have a look out for the documentary, it came out actually this week. Or I think Can you tweet, tweet me about it afterwards? So other yeah, I think it's it. worth I'd like to watch it. I, you see, I did. I went, having gone through the newspaper stories, then you go to the, the miscarriages of justice. I mean, the Trojan horse affair, where mm. I, as you know, the Birmingham schools, which... It's a chapter in your book, yes, Trojan yeah, horse. I devote a chapter. I interviewed Dahir Alam, the great teacher, great governor, who rescued these schools from being terrible schools, you know, gave real hope to thousands of children you know, became one of the best schools in the country. And this is a school for people who've come from, you know, where, where didn't have English as a first language. And then he was courtesy of Michael Gove, the education secretary and the Tory government of the day, in alliance with the bigoted and rancid media. Uh, they targeted the, these teachers, destroyed their lives, wrecked the schools. It's a, it's, it's a gro gross injustice. And that's um, so. The, I would like. I'll like to. Uh, I'll just look at this next miscarriage. These happen. Yeah, I'll definitely send you that. I mean, there's been a lot of work on the Trojan horse, as you know. The New York Times podcast. Um, yeah. Published a series on it, and um, I watched that and I paid attention to it. Yes. 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 Um, going back to your book, um, just speaking broadly about its reception. Uh, have you been surprised by, you know, your former colleagues in the right-wing press and the British mainstream, mainstream media in general? You know, I can't imagine them appreciating being told, you know, for all these years you've been wrong about Islam. And how, how has uh, your reception been? The reception of your do, book? Do I you know what? Uh, I, I, I've been amazed. Do you know what? They've just ignored the book. There was one... Um, Uh, there was one scratchy review in the Telegraph and then nothing from the Murdoch press, nothing from the Telegraph press apart from that one scratchy review, Associated Newspapers, nothing, the BBC, nothing. Now, this is a book, this is a, I, I, this is a serious book. It, it, it goes into the... Very fabric. serious book. I, everyone has to read your book. It's, it's an amazing book and I, I cannot recommend it enough. Now, if you look... I, and I set, set out in great detail why the media, the politicians, the security services have been making terrible mistakes targeting a minority community. 
I don't say, by the way, that Muslims are beyond reproach or beyond criticism, quite the opposite. It's just that they're being targeted as Muslims for, for stupid, bad reasons. Now, nobody has corrected a single fact in my book. But, and I, and I look at the way that Douglas Murray's book, um, The Attack on Death the West. Europe. The death of Europe. Well, strange death of Europe. Look at the way strange death of Europe was received, which is essentially a domestication of the great replacement theory. Um, uh, far right, dangerous stuff, which demonizes in a whole category of, uh, you know, immigrants to this country. Rapturous reviews, you know, celebrated as a public intellectual. Uh, his most recent book about woke history or something is again, you know, four page, four days of serialization in the mail, a sort of groveling review. Well, it struck me as groveling review in the Sunday Times, and so on and so on. So, but this far right stuff gets treated as something almost heroic, and certainly very important by the mainstream media in this country. Whereas my book, which gently rebuts the arguments of the strange death of Europe uh, and shows how noxious they are, has been completely ignored. Now, doesn't that tell you something about the nature of mainstream discourse in this country? Of course, they don't want to hear an opposing view, which questions the, the fundamentals of their belief and their views about Islam. And well, I think this shows a new kind of discourse. I, I believe that 20 years ago in Britain, we had an idea that if somebody had a, a, a strong view and it was reject and it was rejected or challenged, the other view would be heard too. That's a very British value. <laughs> that is a British that is a British value which has been rejected by the mainstream media of tolerance and fairness and free speech. I mean, of course, they bang on the right about free speech, but if they can close you down without even allowing you to be heard, mm. there's nothing sort of. <laughs> There's no law which that makes that happen, but there's a sort of consensus, which means that views which are upsetting to the to the consensus somehow don't get heard at all. So do you worry then that the mainstream and the public intellectuals we have at the moment, they are actually undermining the very conservatism, traditional conservatism, which yeah. you, you support and you advocate for. So they're not really for religious tolerance, which the likes of Burke would you know, propose. They don't want to hear an opposing view and give due care and fairness to people who you know, oppose their views. So do you, do you worry that we've kind of debased truth and um, you know, dialogue in a way which traditional conservative values have been completely besmirched and undermined? Because you are a conservative, you know, you, you feel very strongly about your values and principles. But are, are they the bigger threat to your values and principles, do you think? Yeah, the new right, uh, the new right, which Johnson, uh, as we speak, is still prime minister and he is the prime minister of the Conservative Party, is hostile to British values. It's very important to understand this, deeply hostile to free speech, they're always attacking it, to parliament, He's always tried to sideline it. Uh, uh, and to the British tradition of religious liberty, which Burke, who you've just referenced, wrote about so powerfully. They're hostile to that. They want to impose a sort of coercive secularism 
on British society. It's one of the ways they target Muslims, but not just Muslims, other, they are hostile to religion generally, although I think because you're a minority Muslims, they get, you get more, 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 more hostility than other religious groups. But uh, religious liberty is, is, is under threat. That's what the prevent strategy, there's lots of evidence of the prevent strategy um, going after people who take religion seriously. Now, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that you, we all have to share other people's religious beliefs, but there's a huge tradition of religious tolerance, which people fought for, struggled for, for centuries, which is now being rejected by this new secular movement, which has taken control at the heart of government. Mm. And they, I think one other thing is British values, which again is at the heart of the prevent strategy, has been, cons it's not a British idea. Until very recently, there was no such concept as- British. Stasi idea. <laughs> It is a, well, I, it is a bit, you know. There was no concept of British values. You know, we were decent. I think, you know, we, it was live and let live. We always stood up at our best. And I look, I know that Britain can be very severely criticised, but I, I love Britain. We stood up for the underdog. We were tolerant of eccentricity. We loved, we, you know, with freedom almost to the point of ridiculousness. You know, all sorts of religious sects have flourished or religions have been enabled. And that we, and the concept of British values, there was no, we never had to wave the flag. We were understated. They invented the idea of British values and imposed it after the Trojan horse affair, basically to say to Muslims, as far as I can see, you're not British unless you absolutely sign up to a set of liberal values. So if you look at the definition of British values, it's not, it's liberal, it's coercive liberal values. And you're not allowed to be different from that. Now, have you noticed something that in Scotland, they don't impose British values? No. In Northern Ireland, they don't use British values. It's, it's something they only use in England. And these guys, and it's imposed by this government, which is, a, it is English National Party. They don't even know what British values are. They have the faintest idea. They're hostile to Britain. Well, but, it's not just this government, sorry to interrupt. It's not just government. I said yeah. Labour started it as well. So Labour started There's a Labour. much broader, you yeah. know, a wave of anti-Muslim hostility. And... Yeah, I was thinking, though, about the use of, of British values. in, in, in mm. Yes, that is true. Labour and Gordon Brown came up with, actually, I thought, quite a capacious idea. Of, when he was Prime Minister, he made a lovely speech which set out a very generous idea of British values which I could recognize uh, which is that you can be Jewish and British you can be Scottish and British you can be black and British you can be Muslim and British it's a lovely generous idea of British values which means you can you can subscribe to your ethnic um, sort of background or honor your ethnic heritage and be British you can be Muslim or Jewish or Christian or Buddhist and be or Hindu and be British it wasn't this very narrow tight coercive liberalism which now is supposed to represent British values it does and doesn't that's what I mean yeah no, and, and you, you touch on those issues in your in your book, and I think we can talk a lot about British values and the many ways in which this government is going wrong. Um, but I think we kind of uh, I want to bring the conversation back to the book itself, and especially the the 
the subtitle, which is, you know, why the West is wrong about Islam. So in the list of all the things the West has been wrong about Islam, what do you think is the main thing the West has been wrong about Islam? What, what is it about the West's view and perception of Islam that they've been the most wrong or dangerously wrong about? Well, I go back, I have a historical section about the tracing the relationship of the West and Islam back to the kind of first crusade and below, you know, the, you know, the, where Islam is classified by Christian Europe in the Middle Ages as basically demonic or, or barbarous. Um, uh, and the council, I visit the Council of Clermont where the first crusade was launched. It's not always the case though, that the kind of demented ideas which drove the crusaders, you get, were a dominant. I, there's a wonderful moment in under Tudor history when the greatest English monarch of all time, Elizabeth I, de develops this lovely relationship with, well, very interesting relationship with Suleiman the lawgiver in 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 in, 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 in Empire. Yeah, and it, it's very interesting how they reach out to, to Muslim to Muslim leaders, but I, I and Britain does have a. Throughout, uh, from the Elizabethan period onwards, and until very recent times, quite a rich relationship with Islam. It's full of, um, you know, atrocities, mainly committed, I think, by the British, but um, also by the powers of British, Britain tried to attack <laughs> or to rule over. Um, but then America, I think, is a more difficult problem because uh, essentially it's the... America, there is no, no, no such rich relationship. America, the Holy Bible structures the understanding of, it's the most read book in America, probably still today, but certainly for the first 300 years of its history. And they do see themselves, the Americans, very much after the, you know, as, a, as a nation on a hill. Yeah. Um, uh, that the blessed nation, they take a lot from the Old Testament. And in French, they see themselves, and those who are not the chosen people are barbarians. You know, if you look at the, um, the history of Americans' manifest destiny, there is, uh, it's, it's uh, very interesting. And then the, the, the encounters come in war. First of all, the barb against the Barbary pirates, which happens immediately after the Declaration of Independence, where British sea power is no longer available to protect the um, protect American shipping. You have this proto-clash of civilizations, or so many echoes of uh, what were, not echoes, ant antecedents to what was going to come two or, two or three hundred years later with the in invasion of Iraq and so forth. Mm. So you, you mentioned uh, the clash of civilizations. Um, that's not, that's obviously a very recent concept and framing of West relationship with um, the Muslim world. Um, when did that, you know, policy shift take place when, when they spoke about the clash of civilizations, uh, Huntington's clash of civilizations? When did that start to take shape um, in your view and completely derail uh, some of the positive aspects of uh, the relationships with uh, Islam and the Muslim world, which you take, I think, three chapters to, to, to unpack. Most of your book really is a really rich historical account of 
um, US's history with uh, Islam in the Muslim world, the British history with the Islam Muslim world, and the French one, which is a lot um, more violent. And I think all their past relationship with the Muslim world has shaped current policies. Um, but so, it seems yeah. like, you know, there was a period in history where every single Western country, the three I just mentioned, their prism and their way of looking at the Muslim world was through the lens of a clash of civilization. Uh, Some hunting. Where did that take place? I mean, I, if you look at the British, I, I've suggested that the British Empire, you can criticize it for all sorts of reasons, but it was wrong. It didn't seek to say, you, you've got to be like us. It was Western civilization, you've got to join it. You know, very happy for people to go to mosque or to, to pray however they wished. Uh, the Americans, um, I think, mainly is defined by ignorance. And I think they're shaped very deeply by their experience with native Indians, who they saw as savages. You don't, they're really there to be, to be attacked, to be ethnically cleansed. Uh, and, to have, you know, you, they don't have any rights. France is very different and it's quite uh, telling and it's tragic, which is that France uh, saw Al invades Algeria and, it's an and it, it is a process, that it's a seizure of land, which the British tended, with few exceptions, not to do. So the British in India never sought to take the land and that made it a much less violent relationship. Look at, with certain notable exceptions, such as the first Indian War of Independence, <laughs> what the British called the mutiny. And um, the, uh, but the French, they, they went to North Africa, they seized the land, terrible uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, atrocities committed by the French uh, as they did that. And then the very bloodthirsty War of Independence, which followed after World War II. So it's, and the French conception was that you either were outside the, you were not allowed in, you were uncivilized, or you became French. You just had to uh, essentially deny your, that you were a Muslim or accept, or be very private about it. You had to acknowledge the Republic and the values of the Republic. And Macron is simply a develop, is, is another manifestation of that in France today, where Muslim identity is, is attacked and denied. And that is exactly what the French have been doing since the invasion of Algeria in, 19, in 1830. Mm. Speak a little about the title itself, The Fate of Abraham. I mean, the, the, the book, uh, provides a really long historical account, uh, current government policies. Um, where does the, the idea of the Abrahamic faith come into this? Well, why this grandiose title? Um, are, are you trying to oppose the idea of simply a Judeo-Christian civilization and you see a more broader civilization which includes Islam, uh, Judaism and Christianity, uh, yeah. the three Abrahamic faith. So um, speak a little bit about that. And what, what, what do you envisage uh, with that title? Well, when I, um, if you, you know, if you go to, if I travel around the Middle East and you go to a Christian church and you go in and you will hear the term Allah Jamil from a Christian preacher. You go to a mosque, you'll hear exactly the same term in Arabic, Allah Jamil, God is beautiful. We worship the same God as the Jewish, the Jewish God. 
We all worship the same. And, and the three great relig- uh, monotheistic Middle Eastern religions all worship the same God. It's a very important point. And if you read the Quran, which I've increasingly been doing. Christian Arabs use Allah when they speak about God. They Allah. Say Allah. Yeah, it's the same phrase. Whereas often if you read in West, Western newspapers, Allah is a sort of menacing thing. It's our, it's our God. <laughs> we share the same God. And I'm, um, I find it... I think this is very important. We're much more alive. I mean, the three great religions, monotheistic religions, are very similar. Read the Quran. It's, it's, you know, what it says about Jesus. There's more about Jesus' mother Mary in the Quran than there is in the Bible. I mean, and the, the ethical structures are very similar. Uh, and the prophets had enormous respect for Jesus and Mary and all the Jewish prophets. It's... Uh, and so I think we have so much. I do think that the people of the book, which is the phrase Islam uses, Al Kitab, Al Kitab, is a better phrase. I understand why Judeo Christian tradition emerged. It emerged in the 30s, in part. And it emerged because Christianity had been, had been anti Semitic from the start, almost. And the. Um, and then there have been, you know, you go through the pogroms, you go through Martin Luther's lethal anti-Semitism, and it culminates in the Nazis. And intellectuals and theologians in the 1930s are having to say the Judeo-Christian tradition in order to bring in the, as the terrible matter that the Holocaust is getting, is, is beginning to be seeded. But after World War II, it, the necessity for that particular phrase went away, but it was used against the communism, and then it's used against Muslims. It's used as a, if you look at, I studied the history of this, or the contemporary history of this, it's now used by far-right groups against Muslims. They're attacking our Judeo-Christian tradition. You know, if you look at Bannon, the, you know, Trump's ideologist, has got a center of um, Judeo-Christian feel, uh, sort of thought. You know, on the French right, they're, always, they're now using this term, Judeo-Christian, not to be inclusive, which is what it should be, but to be exclusive, to exclude one of the great Abrahamic religions. Uh, and that is why I felt Fate of Abraham was, was a meaningful title for the book. Mm. I've always wondered, you know, um, it's not solely Christian civilization, but European civilization pushed its Jewish citizens to the brink of extinction. Mm. Uh, nevertheless, they've managed to overcome that and see themselves as a unified civilization, despite the persecution of Judaism and Jews through the centuries. Mm. Um, so why is such a strong leap to make uh, be more gracious and accommodate Islam as also part of that civilization. I think, I mean, scholarly, there, there have been some professors like, for example, I think Richard Bulliet, who he, he's got a book called The Case for a Judeo-Christian Islamic Civilization. Yeah, uh, Richard, yeah. American. So you're in good company. You're in good company. You know, that, yeah. that, that, that there, are, that there, are, there are people who are advocating uh, the idea. Um, essentially, if you can have a... Um, you know, Judeo-Christian, uh, I don't think it's a huge leap to say that Islam is part of that, given the, the historical connection 
in Spain, Andalusia, and also through the Crusades, you know, Islam. Wonderful periods of European history when, we, you know, in Andalusia where religious tolerance is practiced. But also there's another thing which I point about the Judeo-Christian tradition, which I think is, is, is troublesome, which is actually, if you look at the, his, the intellectual history of Europe and the theological history of Europe, all kinds of other influences from the ancient Greeks to modern secularism, feminism, which uh, have nothing to do, um, uh, uh, liberalism, which have little or nothing to do with the Judeo-Christian, the Bible, the, the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament uh, tradition. And actually, particularly in the last uh, 50 to 100 years, we've got new traditions emerging, a sort of militant secularism, which are in fact hostile to the Judeo-Christian tradition and to Muslims and to Islam. And in fact, Muslim, Islam, Judaism and Christianity have far more in common. They're fighting a common battle against coercive liberalism or secularism um, and standing up for sort of religious liberty against this dominant secular state. And so really there is, there is a, 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 find, a further reason for trying to link the three religions. Mm. Yeah, and I think- You often see this in cross-faith groups. Mm. You know, they, they know what they're doing. You know, there's Jewish Muslims groups, there are Jewish Christian groups, Christian Muslim groups and so on. And they, they are clearly fighting the same battle for traditional values in a society which is modernizing very fast. Mm. And, we, and I think there is a natural ally there against, uh, you know, uh, extremist secularism. But I want to swiftly move on because I am conscious of the time and go really to the, the, the meat of your book, uh, which brings the history to the contemporary period, which looks at the Cold War in Islam. Mm. I mean, as you said, the book's separating three, uh, the first three parts is the history, and then you look at um, you know, the Cold War. If I can put that into context, you know, the former USSR was defeated. Uh, and many of the characters, uh, groups, organizations, and think tanks, for example, uh, Policy Exchange, which appears in your book, uh, you know, that was set up to accelerate uh, the downfall of the Soviet Union, uh, turned their attention and focus to the NIFA, which is Islam and the Muslims, and they use the same propaganda tools. So tell us a bit about the, you know, the, the new Cold War in Islam yeah. that's taken shape and, um, you know, who, who are the main characters? Uh, I'm not, I didn't quite say a policy exchange, which is... Oh, no, no, you didn't say... Well, that they, they, they were set up in 2000, early 21st century, but they were, uh, what I argue is that they, they looked back uh, and organisations like policy exchange, they looked back to the... Uh, the security architecture set up at the end of the Cold War uh, after 1945 to deal with the threat of um, Soviet communism. And so when after 9-11, uh, the, the, the policymakers and intellectuals set up, a, felt there needed to be a security architecture to deal with Muslims. And in order to, to work out how to deal with, do this, they went back to the immediate years after 1945, when the CIA and other intelligence services set up a, 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 a huge secret network of, of civil society organizations, which were 
secretly, covertly guided uh, by, by, by the United States government or the British government in order to uh, manipulate and control uh, um, the left. And it created, it made a division in the left between those who were acceptable leftists or socialists and those who were communists. Uh, and many intellectuals were part of this. The fam most famous case in Britain is probably Encounter magazine, which project projected itself under um, under the, some of the most dominant intellectuals of the time. It was this very sort of left-wing magazine, but actually it was all the time controlled by um, uh, the CIA and MI6. Uh, and they're very consciously, there's a very good book by which I drew on by somebody called Francis Stoner Saunders, who explains this. Uh, process and very conscious. This book was very important in creating the security architecture posts, uh, particularly after 7 7. Uh, and I show how they did it and I show the use of the same covert strategies. I look at things like the Quilliam Foundation, which was an, uh, which actually wasn't covert, but it was set up by the British state with the aid of the British state in order to create this idea of the moderates and Muslim. I give a history of the Quilliam Foundation. We also get a, um, and how it sort of ends up rather farcically, I would say, uh, a few years ago. Uh, I, and the same McCarthyism, which evolved after, after 1945 in the States, I have a look at that. And then you can show that Muslims in Britain, not, not violent Muslims or sort of, dangerous people, but people who have the wrong political view, Islamists normally that they're, they're labeled, get put on secret lists, get excluded from public discourse and so on. I, and I show, I, I, and I make the analogies, they're quite sharp analogies, they're very similar. And, I, and the final thing I say is, look, in, in 1945 onwards with the rise of Soviet Russia, uh, there was a genuine threat to the West by a, a, a genuine um, danger, the Soviet Russia, which threatened the values of the West. There's no Muslim countries which are at war with the West. I mean, they don't want, they don't, they don't pose a threat. And uh, to categorize millions of your and my fellow citizens as somehow subversive or dangerous is a very, uh, is it, something which I'm uh, strongly against. I think it is very un British. It's a path of totalitarianism, isn't it? it? It is very much, and I'm afraid that it may be about to get worse with the publication of the Shawcross Review of the Prevent Strategy. One hears the most alarming things about that. That's right. It wants to refocus um, its attention on Muslims and not far-right extremist, extremists. Uh, yes, it should, that should be coming out soon. I, I want to ask one last question and return back to Boris. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, Boris is... Is, is it phenomenal in the sense that, you know, he's not simply an individual, he's part of a movement which saw Trump and the general, um, you know, um, toxicity within our politics, degeneration of politics. Uh, you have a book called The Rise of uh, Political Lying as well. So in some ways, some can, you know, would argue that, you know, this is chicken coming home to roost, a chicken coming home to roost, you know, having toxified politics, culture, society, uh, to advance the so-called war on terror uh, directed to the Muslims. Uh, some would say, is it any wonder, you know, we have the likes of Johnson, the likes of Trump, and a general war on truth, when truth 
is yeah. uh, when lie is normalized in the fight against is, uh, Islam or Islamism, as they would say. Why should we accept anything else other than figures like Trump, figures like Johnson, and the general debasement of uh, politics? I, I agree with this entirely. Um, one of the things, ways that Johnson has been trying to save his skin in recent months is to develop a whole series of what political, the political, political experts call wedge issues. These are little right-wing ideas which are inserted into public debate and split people off. And they always shift you towards the right. Uh, and I'm very afraid that the next wedge issue, which culture war that the conservatives will want to fight, either under Johnson or probably when he's gone, uh, but they were planning it, you can see the next one, is, is, is the short cross report and the prevent strategy and the security, further securitization of the of, of British Muslims. And I, um, based on ignorance, by the way, it's just it's, for our viewers. Sorry, Peter. For our, I think Rwanda was the last wedge issue. Yeah, um, and let's let's finish. Rwanda was a terrible moment. Yeah, that was a wedge issue. Terrible moment where you get the um, you get the question of asylum seekers and you politicize it. And you 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 show you show you're ready to basically discard every value which Western civilization claims is its own to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda, which has been the site of a recent genocide and where human rights are still very precarious. And it's a deliberate strategy to embarrass. Starmer, the Labour Party, which because it's looking because they'll say, "What else are you going to do with immigrants?" And so it, it make immigration has always been a right wing issue. It's not going to work, but that doesn't even really matter because politically, it creates a dividing line between Labour and the Conservatives, and it's for, for people who don't know understand the issues very well, it's popular. Thank you, Peter. And we have come to the end of our time. It's been really uh, fantastic having you on our show so for those of you those of viewers at home watching you know get the book it's a fantastic book quite chunky but um you know a lot of history and also connects uh, the current war on terror and uh, hostility towards islam prevent uh, trojan horse Quilliam, so many other things with um, um in a in a way which is very unique and very enjoyable to read I um, hope I did hope to make I did try and make it very uh, readable so that it's, it's very readable. It's very yeah. it's not an academic book. It's very very readable, and as you'd expect from a journalist like yourself, you know, came journalist like yourself. Uh, so thank you again, and um, and thank our I want to thank our viewers at home as well for joining us. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. See you again for another conversation with the Middle East Monitor. Thank you very much, and I look forward to seeing you. Bye bye. Goodbye. This was Middle East Monitor Conversations, brought to you by the Middle East Monitor in London. <laughs>